This is Mass Timber Today, and I'm Craig Applegas. This podcast explores the opportunities and challenges of sustainable mass timber construction with experts in the design, building, and forestry sectors. In this episode, I talk with Patrick Crabb, Director of Mass Timber at Burt Construction. Patrick and I discuss the cost-effectiveness of sustainable mass timber, how to deal with building code bottlenecks that discourage mass timber development in Canada, the challenges of supply chain obstacles, and why mass timber is such an important tool for climate change mitigation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Patrick, welcome to the Mass Timber Today podcast. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here and speaking with you again. You're well known in the Canadian mass timber industry for your work at Bird Construction and before that for your work at Atlantic Woodworks. So why don't you tell our listeners how you became interested in mass timber and how it became your career? Yeah, it's an interesting story, Craig, but how I became interested in mass timber is truly because of the value that mass timber can bring to the forest industry. I'm a firm believer that this is the highest value product possible that can be created from our precious natural resources. And how it became part of my career is I was part of a third generation family business where we had multiple sawmills and a value-added manufacturing facility. And with kind of not being diversified into Canadian markets, which really still have a lot of the Canadian sawmilling and a lot of the the value-added products still work, is we're so dependent on the export market of the U.S. And if there's anything that changes that makes the industry vulnerable, it's kind of beyond our control. And that's exactly what happened to our family business in 2008. Currency changes and the housing market collapsed. And It really made it difficult to run a profitable business, and therefore we ended up closing our doors. So how it became part of my career is wanting to be a part of something that was going to diversify the industry for long-term success and build a more robust forest sector that can supply growing demands of forest products here in Canada. What is it about mass timber itself that you find so compelling? What makes you so passionate about it? So what makes me so passionate about it is that mass timber allows the forest industry to access new markets. And as I had touched on initially about adding value. So, you know, before mass timber, we were really restricted down to six stories and below of, you know, various types of building classifications. So again, the passion is coming from, this is an excellent diversification strategy that can grow the value in our forest industry, and I guess reduce the impact of of carbon and construction at the same time. So what are you doing right now in the world mass timber? What mass timber projects are you currently leading or involved with? Yeah, so we have multiple projects right now across the country uh, from, you know, Prince Edward Island to Victoria, BC that are in various stages of construction from, you know, mass timber erection at the moment to early design and pre-construction to almost substantial completion. Uh, One of them is Bergen Gardens in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and it's the first mid-rise mass timber building that is used in kind of a a long-term care classification. So those are some of the projects that we're working on. And then some of the special initiatives at the moment, really interested in Tallwood feasibility. So we're through various projects that, that can't be mentioned, and hopefully we can celebrate soon, which uh, are really going to change some perceptions around what wood is capable of and put some parts of the map here in Canada, maybe on the global scale, 
of mass timber construction. So we're pretty excited about that. So looking into, yeah, is it cost effective? Are the trade pools there to really support the accelerated construction schedule of some of these massive tallwood buildings? And, you know, some of the other initiatives are really around just broad scale education to various types of groups and decision makers on how to set up your mass timber project for success. And then, Craig, as you know, there's a bit of a, an interesting project aside from all of that, that is truly investigating establishing the pan-Atlantic mass timber manufacturing strategy and perhaps revolutionizing how eastern spruce pine and fir, those strength properties uh, will be used in mass timber to be equitable to Douglas fir and southern yellow pine products, which are perceived to be the highest strength in the industry. And are you involved in that? Yes. Yes, I am involved in that. So talk about that. What's happening there? Yes. Yeah, so there's a, a group of us that are working with some long-standing family sawmills and with the support of various government agencies and some private commitment, we just decided to look at why is it that there isn't machine stress-rated lumber or mass timber manufacturing integrated with sawmills in Atlantic Canada? So we just kind of took a piece of two by four and turned it in the flatwise dimension thousands of times with various grades and types of species to truly see how it performed in the flatwise orientation, which is just how wood is used in cross-laminated timber or glue-laminated timber. Right. And what we found is that the strength properties were incredible. And if grades can be isolated and, and arranged in certain ways, that proprietary products, much like what Nordique is doing today, can be competing against the perceived high-strength species across the world. That sounds very innovative. Tell uh, listeners more about the kind of mass timber innovations you're seeing in your work, innovations that will really move the design engineering mass timber forward. What are you, what are you seeing there? So just with that, you know, the answer to that last question, I, I would say I'm quite fascinated on the manufacturing side. We're seeing a lot of manufacturing facilities being modernized now to flexibly produce mass timber components that can satisfy commodity markets, but then also build the robust columns and deep beams and wide CLT panels that are going to build the uh, tall wood buildings of tomorrow. So that's one innovation. And, you know, the, the other is really the emergence of tall wood. And, and Craig, through your excellent work, on your patented system to hybridize different materials, pushing the limits and kind of satisfying the fact that you can build a hundred stories and, and greatly reduce the carbon impact of a building. So that's really what I find, you know, amazing about where this industry is going. Yeah. And as you pointed out, the innovations around a machine and certainly automation, I was on tour in Italy and Austria a few weeks back and was really, really impressed by the fabricators over there and the extent of innovation. In, in some of the fabrication plants, there are only three or four people actually walking around doing sort of end finishing products and everything else was being done by, by robots. It was fascinating. And the best part about that is, you know, um, yes, robots, uh, they can work, you know, 20 hours a day and, and really help kind of reduce a lot of the pressures around our constricted labor pools and, you know, hopefully bring more efficiency 
to this needed affordability and, and infrastructure. So it's interesting. But also, Craig, I just want to rewind back about another innovation that I'm finding exciting is around fire and life safety. This is something that has really prevented our building codes from taking larger leaps. And as we know that our time is, is really running out as far as what we need to address with lower carbon infrastructure options, you know, our Canadian codes are very conservative and they're, they're just kind of working in little steps. And there's still a lot of different classifications of buildings that need to be addressed. And the Canadian Wood Council just completed one of the largest fire demonstrations that have uh, ever been done before. And, you know, the, the results were unbelievable. And it's just about how quickly we can take that information and, and incorporate it into, into alternate solutions to really try and accelerate this, this code adoption and, and comfort across our nation. Yeah, that's very important. And I want to follow up on your point about sustainability, because there's certainly a lot of discussion about what makes mass timber a more environmentally responsible and sustainable building material. What's your take on this and, and how would you expand on that? Well, I think it's one of the largest blind spots in design and construction today, and that's just embodied carbon. The amount of energy that is required to generate a cubic meter of wood, you know, really it's just utilizing water and sun and, and carbon dioxide, where conversely with some of the other products, you know, there are very high carbon inputs and lots of energy required to, to produce those similar volumes. And, you know, when you look at this too, on uses just outside of buildings and in bridges, that's really where we can see somewhat of an exponential increase in carbon savings for simple infrastructure solutions. It's in bridges because the strength to weight proportion. So we can use less material to span further and uh, potentially have a much longer service life. Yeah, we were seeing in Austria a number of the plants having the ability to pressure treat the lamella individually for mold and insects and then glue them together so that they could be used in exterior conditions. And I think that's certainly a really important opportunity in the future. So I'm, I'm glad you raised that. Yeah, absolutely. What about some of the discussions or arguments right now about biogenic carbon? The notion for people that don't know the term, it's the notion that there's embodied carbon, which is all the carbon that's released in the processing of the material to get it on site and then construct it. And then there is biogenic carbon, which is the kind of carbon that's stored in the wood, locked up by using wood. And the, the concern with, by some environmentalists about biogenic carbon is that buildings won't be there forever. And when the wood is deconstructed, the carbon may be released. I think the argument for biogenic is, well, it may be in 20 or 30 years, but the climate emergency is right now. And we've got to deal with the next 25 years or it's almost besides the point. Is your take similar on biogenic carbon? It's like one cubic meter of wood locks up one ton of CO2. Yeah, I think it's quite silly for us to deny that and not include that in the total carbon benefit. And you're right. When we look at the state of rising global temperatures today and, you know, the links to greenhouse gas emissions and carbon emissions, whatever we can save right now today can be worth 10, 20 times more 
than that in five years. You know, I'm just kind of throwing arbitrary numbers out there. So, you know, much like an RSP, it's compounding interest, in my opinion. So the more that we can lock away today. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the more of an impact it's going to have tomorrow. Yep. And, and what I mean by tomorrow is this is where a lot of our government expenditures are, are being spent is in cleaning our grids so that there's going to be less impact on a lot of those traditional materials. So, yeah, the, the, the more we move today the more a lot of the backbone of emissions and everything like that will be addressed by the time that potentially those buildings that were sequestering that carbon end up being entered back into the atmosphere. One of the things that I hear sometimes from clients or uh, prospective clients when they're considering mass timber is they say, Craig, we'd really love to use mass timber. It looks great. And we understand the sustainability um, characteristics of it are very positive, but we're worried about its cost effectiveness. So tell me how you address that uh, when you hear that question. Yes, I feel the cost effectiveness question. It, it in order to do an apples to apples comparison of conventional methods versus mass timber today, if you utilize traditional design and building practices. Often it's not going to be cost competitive because the level of knowledge of how to design effectively to supply chain constraints and the, the comfort of the industry to be able to bid these projects properly, inherently they're just going to be covering their risk and, and adding unnecessary premiums. So if you're designing a building in steel and they approach you, Craig, and say, look, I can't get steel for 18 months. Can you switch this to, to mass timber and give me a cost? Well, it's just not, again, incorporating the things that needed to be thought about early in that design process to make mass timber more efficient. Perhaps you needed to shrink one bay in one direction and extend it in another to achieve the programming desired needs of that building to make it more cost effective. So it's, it's just a different thought process. And I can guarantee that when you start to utilize more collaborative models and have the design developed with the architect, the engineer, and the mass timber expert and involve uh, some of the key trades and, and, and manufacturing companies a bit earlier in the process that there's going to be limited to no increase in, in cost per square foot. And you will also be able to capitalize on the construction savings through the prefabricated benefits of mass timber, the schedule savings. So at the start of this conversation, we talked about how passionate you are about mass timber. What are the most inspiring mass timber projects you're seeing out there and what it is about them that inspires you? You know, my answer may surprise you. I am, I would say at this point in my career and where I think the mass timber industry is and where it can go is that, yes, I am inspired through demonstration of, you know, taller wood buildings and so on, but I am more inspired by the everyday project. The everyday project that is a direct substitution to higher carbon materials that can be cost effective, whether it's just a small office component attached to a warehouse facility with a few open bay doors or an affordable housing project like Element 5 had completed in Kitchener, Ontario to affordable indigenous housing solutions that can be rapidly developed. Affordable housing, YMCA. Those are really what I find the, the inspiring ones are, are, the, are the pragmatic, cost-effective ones that can be built every day. So that leads me to my next question, which is what 
kinds of building types could be mass timber, but currently aren't? And how do we get there? Well, I, I think there's a lot of building types that could be mass timber, even within today's code permissions. Like it would be great to see more low rise commercial buildings utilizing mass timber or retail spaces utilizing mass timber. And I think that that's just more the way the industry has evolved and the comfort level of the relationship that those developers have with designers and suppliers. But really, as far as code progression and where I think things need to go is in our B2 occupancies, our long-term care facilities that exposed wood has direct links to healthier environments and faster healing times and, and, and mental health benefits. And, and then as well as in hospitals where kind of the most vulnerable individuals in our society live. And you talked about code challenges. What do you see as being the most important challenges for mass timber and how do we address them? So firstly, I, I really find that the diction in our code that says combustible and non-combustible construction does need to be addressed or whether a new definition is used for the word mass timber as it has different combustible properties than that of a wood frame building. So really, if we can either change that in the next iteration of the code so that it's more just about demonstrating the fire rating. The of actual performance. Yeah, yeah, performance-based. And, and even the fire suppression mechanisms that are used, you know, a lot of the times we could build a two hour assembly and maybe it not even be sprinklered, but then why don't we just build a one hour that would and have, sprinkler it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would yeah. be sprinklered. The, look, so look, at, look at the end result as opposed to little pieces. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the reality about building code, as we both know, is it it's as much political as it is technical. I mean, it's about who's really pushing the provinces and the federal government to make the changes, right? So it's yeah, and that's and that's just not right. You know, this should be a technical demonstration of capability. Should be what is driving our codes, and not anything other than that. Is it worthwhile talking about the supply chain? I know that some people say that in Canada there's just wonderful supply chain for supplying mass timber into the industry. And some people worry about the um, ability once this really takes off and is starting to right now for the existing supply chain to handle the demand. What's your take on supply chain right now? Yeah. So I'm kind of going through this at, at the moment with one of the special projects I mentioned at the beginning. And what we're realizing is that it's the sawmill industry that is kind of preventing the mass timber supply capacities to develop. And thankfully, we have really progressive partners that are willing to utilize a portion of their production capacity that would just be lumped in as commodity lumber to go and feed a higher value market. And that has major downstream impacts of these sawmilling businesses from their relationships with brokers to that risk in taking a, a portion of your supply and, and not being able to feed current customers. So I think that until there's a, a system or a way that's being developed that can bolt on to existing sawmilling companies to pay them more money for the inputs for mass timber products, it's going to continue to be a main pinch point today. Mm -hmm. And another point to bring up about that, Craig, is that the way that 
mass timber is being promoted across Canada is mainly through the green construction through wood program and the Canadian Forest Service of Canadian Natural Resources. And there's one program that really does help link satisfying that increased demand through that, you know, very, what I would say, kind of imbalanced promotion towards more construction and wood and, and really where we need to go. But there's only one little program that helps support the industry to really make the modernizations and increase their capacities uh, to support this promoted demand. So I would really say that those are the two major conflicts that no one's really talking about. Yeah. And, and on the flip side of the challenges coin, from your vantage point, what do you see being the most important opportunities for mass timber design and construction in the future? And how do we take advantage of them? Yeah. The most important opportunities I see are kind of the conversions of government across Canada to start to build with it and their everyday projects. And, you know, our various levels of government are the largest developers, and they often signal a lot of confidence to those medium to slower movers in the, the private development space, knowing how conservative traditionally government is. So, you know, if they're building a 14-story mass timber office building across from the, the parliament in Ottawa, that's really going to signal a major expansion of mass timber interest across Canada because of that. So yes, seeing more exemplary leadership of our various governments to design and build with mass timber. But I think the biggest one, Craig, is about how do we create that link from utilizing low carbon construction solutions or doing life cycle or carbon calculations on buildings and how that will support this path to net zero in some capacity. So once we do finalize a way to incentivize people, whether that be in a monetary way, which I don't think will really happen, but at least contribute to part of that picture of, you know, the offsets that we have generated through designing and building in smarter ways to help meet government objectives. Those are the things that I'm really excited about, but I understand they're political and have a very complex web between regulation and due diligence. Uh, the good news is uh, on a lot of federal government RFQs and RFPs, now I'm seeing the expectation that mass timber will be one of the focuses of the project. Whether or not it actually gets rolled out, we'll see. And in terms of carbon, yes, because if carbon offsets actually can be something that's priced in an international forum, then all of a sudden mass timber has much greater value. Like It actually can be monetized in terms of both biogenic and embodied carbon. So I agree 100% there. To wrap up our conversation, I'd like you to tell listeners, what are the three articles or websites or books related to mass timber you would recommend and why? Yes. So there's a, a really neat tool. So this is more of a website that was developed by Natural Resources Canada in partnership with uh, Woodworks and the Canadian Wood Council. And it's an interactive mass timber map. When you go on, you can request that more projects be added, but you can zone in on or set various filters in, in different parts of Canada to see how many mass timber projects were done, what type of projects they were, a link to a case study, and, and see who the designers were on that project. So I think that, you know, that's going to evolve over time and become more and more powerful to a lot of people that don't understand 
just how widely accepted and, and utilized that this is. So, so that would be the first one. And, and we'll, we'll put the link on okay. the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And, and the second one is the, the Timber Bay tool that was developed by Fastinet that can really help various individuals of all disciplines size their grid properly, understand their wood volumes and, you know, kind of have a rough indication of, of member sizing, uh, you know, structural feasibility has to be done in parallel with early design practice. So, so it's, it's, it's a great tool to, to assist everyone to get off on the right foot on that conceptual stage. And then there's just two more, Craig, and these are more reports. One of them is the Royal Bank of Canada. It's called Build It and They Will Come. And it's the December 2020, I believe, Mass Timber Equity Report. It's probably one of the strongest pieces of research I've seen about what is holding our industry back and what innovations need to happen to really unlock the potential of, of mass timber manufacturing in Canada. So I have Patrick, a link. is there a link for that? There is a link for okay, that one. Okay, great. Yes. Thank you. And then the recent one, which unfortunately is based on subscription, but the Forest Economic Advisors produced a market report that covers the North American mass timber market in July of this year. And it was truly staggering to see how the demand is now completely shifting to the east where there is limited supply capacity. And, and east is what? In North America? Eastern east? North America. So eastern co east coast. East coast, yep. both in Canada and the US. So pretty much I could pull it up and recite some of the numbers, but the mass timber industry certainly was incubated in the West. And that's where all the demand was fostered. And thanks to the good work of, 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 of everyone and, and, you know, that part of North America. And now it's just, it's completely shifted. So there's excess supply capacity and dropping demand on the West coast. And there's a whole bunch of other factors at play for the reason why that is. And now here in the East, you know, it's, uh, the demand is about, you know, two thirds of, of what the production capacity. In fact, we have a, a European manufacturer coming over to the East coast, don't we? In, in the near future. We do. Yes. Yes. So that's great. Thank you for that. And finally, what advice would you offer our listeners about how they could shift into using mass timber on their building projects? So the first piece of advice I would give is start small. Don't go with your next uh, showcase project. If you're a private developer, maybe look at just kind of a low-rise commercial application or a portion of a larger building to really build that comfort level and understand how this is just different in design and procurement and construction than that of steel and concrete. So that'd be the first one. And the second one is to really start to kind of transition into more of collaborative delivery. I agree 100%. <laughs> it's so important to have everyone at the table working together. Absolutely. And especially this one for institutions and government that are going to be pushing the limits with larger projects and relying heavily on the architecture, engineering, and construction community to do this for them. You all want to be at the table working together as early in the process as possible. And the next one, it kind of goes without saying, but it's about building that trusted team. Again, if, if you're a, a private developer that is really trying to include this as part of a master plan or capitalizing on ESG metrics and, and, and commitments to be greener through your development practices is 
develop that team because in your next project, there are going to be so many efficiencies and lessons learned. And then in your next project, even more and more and more where to the developer, there's going to be a lot of trade savings that are passed along to you to make projects more affordable. So building that team and, and kind of sticking with it. And then my last one is track carbon in your building. You don't need to have a lead designation. You don't need to spend all that money to do this. Like the universal currency here is carbon. It doesn't cost a lot of money to take your base building design, do a quick life cycle analysis, and just see about what improvements that you could make to reduce your impact, whether that be through design efficiencies, which are going to save money, or through you know introducing lower carbon materials. And then the next thing is to celebrate that. You know, use that as part of your marketing strategy. Use that as a plaque in your building or a cool little interactive display that explains what you did and, you know, what, what, what impact it has on the re how many cars off the road, how many homes have been displaced from you just thinking in a different way about how to procure your project. Well, that's very valuable advice and clearly you are passionate. And it's great to have you as part of this industry and work with you. Thank you very much for your time today, Patrick. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Craig. It's, it's my pleasure. The Mass Timber Today podcast is produced by the Mass Timber Institute at the University of Toronto's John H. Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape and Design. Each podcast explores the opportunities and challenges of mass timber with experts in the design, building, and forestry sectors to shed light on the future of sustainable mass timber construction. You can find show notes, including references mentioned in this podcast, on our website at masstimberinstitute.ca, where you can also view our current projects and subscribe to our MTI newsletter. This episode was edited by Derek Wellsman and produced by Sean Shuklaw at the Mass Timber Institute. We'd also like to give a special thanks to Dialogue for their generous sponsorship of this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate us at the Apple iTunes ranking site. You can also reach us on our website, and we'd love to hear from you with any suggestions for future interviews. 